0: Welcome to a new episode of Infinite Games, a show about the misfits, rebels, and idealists reshaping the way we work, live, and play, all told through in-depth conversations with founders, operators, and investors working at the edge of what's next. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, we dive into the world of rental real estate with Dana Dunford, co-founder and CEO of HimLane. After starting to invest in rental properties more than a decade ago, Dana noticed that there was a massive hole in the market. As a landlord, you could either manage everything yourself or pay someone else to manage it for you. There was no middle ground. So Dana and her co-founder Frank Liu set out to build exactly that, and surprise, surprise, they've scaled incredibly quickly. In this episode, we cover all the basics of managing rental properties, including the pros and cons of managing them directly versus partnering with a full-service manager how Hemlane is different and how they've managed to survive and thrive where literally every other competitor has failed, the lessons they've learned building out a powerful platform by solving one small pain point at a time, and how an unlikely angel check from Dana's NBA professor gave her the confidence to found the company. To learn more about Hemlane, visit Hemlane.com or find them on Twitter at H-E-M-L-A-N-E. For links to everything we cover in this conversation, as well as our favorite lessons and quotes from Dana, visit outlieracademy.com slash 63 for our full show notes. And now let's jump in with Dana Dunford, co-founder and CEO of Hemlane. Dana, thank you so much for coming on Outlier Academy. I'm super excited to chat with you today about the rental market, about Hemlane and about your background.
1: Great. Likewise, I'm excited to be on the show.
0: So, I wanted to start by just covering your background because your background, I think, is fascinating in just the kind of progression that you had. So, for everyone listening, can you just share the beginning part of your story up to founding Himlane?
1: Well, I would say at the beginning, if you asked me when I was 18 years old and working full time while going to school, if I would have started a company or been in property management, I would have said no way. And so, from that perspective, I started in tech. I was fascinated by technology and the power it had to bring people together. So started at Apple, new product introductions team, all the way to Nest Home Technology, which got me really fascinated with real estate, to helping manage real estate um, for my family. And suddenly all of that transpired into Hemlane. But I would say from that perspective, it wasn't like I had this path that when I was 15, I said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to build a company in prop tech. It wasn't like that. It was just me following what interests me. And along the way, it was building blocks to what Hemlane is today.
0: And before you founded Hemlane, you also took a break and went to business school. Can you talk just a little bit about that experience and what that was like for you?
1: yeah a lot of people go to business school quite frankly because they're a little bit lost. I think that was very similar to me in the sense I wasn't lost. I loved my job. I love working. But I was that person who always asked the questions "Why, which I think you had mentioned off the show. Kids do that, three year olds do that. I did that as well. I was like, well, why do things work this way? Why do we have to do things this way? And so I took a step back to go to business school and see what else was out there. And the benefit of that, of getting out of the day-to-day was it just made me think large. And I was in a design and innovation class and asked, hey, what could you do to change the world or change something? And they said, it can be anything from making a hanger better, like in your closet, hanging up your clothes, all the way to doing something that is, you know, developing country and getting food supplies there, whatever it may be. And for me, I basically took what I knew about real estate and wrote a paper on why property management why it worked the way it did, but it just didn't work well enough, and took everything I knew from being so detail-oriented and asking, why do you charge 10% of monthly rent? Why are you only doing the background and credit check this way? Why aren't you doing additional reference checks? And taking all of the information I knew and putting that together to say, all of this is how it works. Here's all of the basically problems with how it works today and then here is why I think that we could have a better solution and that actually led to starting Hemlane, because the professor not only gave us the top grade, but said, go build it. And we even got a check, our first angel check out of the door for it. That was the impetus of Hemlane, was going through that process. And I actually thought it was really beneficial because when I went into business school, I had no idea. I thought, maybe I'll go back to Apple. Maybe I'll go to Nest again. It wasn't like I went there and said, I'm going to start a company no matter what. It was just that was the path and direction that I went after being out of the day-to-day and thinking at a higher level, what impact I could have on the world.
0: I think it would be super interesting from there if you can give a little elevator pitch about what Himlane is. And then I would love to dive into some of the just things that you saw that where you felt like there was massive room for improvement in that paper and in the industry that Himlane is in.
1: Yeah. So today, if you just look at the market of real estate there's 44 million renter households over 72 percent of them are self-managed where if you talk to any tenant they say oh i really don't like my landlord they don't listen to me they don't respond fast enough if you talk to the landlords they say my tenants are really needy they want a ton of things it's not an experience where people say i love my landlord and i love the people who are living in my home no you've never heard that and so when you look at the market today. There's two options. It's either do-it-yourself for a landlord or a full-service property manager. And 72% of rentals are self-managed. And so you don't have that level of professionalism of these fast responses, making someone who's living in that home feel like it's theirs, and also providing these guidelines of you know here's what to expect. You walk into a store, and you see a price tag on it, and you know exactly what to expect. If I want this shirt, this is how much I have to pay for it. In rentals, there is a lot of ambiguity of who's going to cover what. What are the expectations? So that kind of gets to the elevator pitch. Hemline is an all-in-one platform that basically allows owners to do what they do well, but provides technology and local support to do everything else, everything from 24-7 repair coordination to someone to show your property, communication with tenants, and really making sure it provides a level of professionalism for the tenants as well as for you so that you know as a landlord you don't feel overwhelmed by the request from your tenants or find it an inconvenience and then for a tenant they actually finally feel like the customer
0: where their needs are put first That seventy percent stat around the number of rentals that are self-managed seems staggering. (laughs) More than two thirds are self-managed, and you know I've know from talking to a few people that own rental properties that that's not a small amount of work, and it can be a massive inconvenience when it's needed. So I'd be curious for some of your takes, insights on why that number is so high. Makes me think of a mom and pop business where there's just not that much money to be made at the the end of the day, so people are nickel and diming. So that may be. Be part of it, why else, or some of the other reasons why people continue to manage properties themselves?
1: Yeah, the average real estate investor owns, it's between two to four properties based on what source you're going to. Average person owns between two to four. So it's super SMB, SMB, small, medium-sized business, and much more on that small end. And when you look at those types of businesses, no matter where it is, like a retail store, a restaurant, or in this case real estate all of them are very cheap with operations and like whatever is below the line so below revenue so you'll see they'll pay a lot of money if they think it can get them a higher rental price but when you look at operations of actually managing the day to day they don't actually value their time as much and this is all smb this is not just rental properties they don't value their time as much. So, even if their time is $100 an hour, they'll say, Oh, if the property manager charges me $100 a month, that's too much. Even though they're going to put in more than an hour worth of time, they're going to say, That's too much. I'm going to do it myself. So, they don't value their time as much as they should. And the second reason is also incentives are misaligned. So, let me give you just one example, but there's hundreds out there. One example is rent. It's 10% of monthly rent. It's a pretty standard fee that a property manager charges. Now, when you look at properties and, and just the management of rental properties, properties that are on the lower end, so say it's $500 a month, that is the rental rate. That means a property manager makes $50 a month to manage that property. That property is much more difficult to manage than the $4,000 a month rental in a city where the management fee is $400 a month. So what happens is you see majority of people that are over that $1,000 a month, they will say, I am going to just manage my property myself because the more my rent goes up, the higher fee that the property manager takes. And so that's a misaligned incentive where it's like, well, it should be flat rate. It shouldn't be a percentage of monthly rent. So there are certain examples like that, that when you dig into the details, you continue to see it. And that hasn't changed for over 100 years. Those rates have just stayed the same and no one's ever questioned it. No one's actually decided to change that model. And so I think that's where technology can really come in and say, what isn't working in the industry and how can we align the industry and bring it together better with rates that make sense, aligning incentives between tenants, owners, and managers, and providing a new level of service that has never been seen before.
0: I'm curious if we zoom out a little bit, if you could talk a little bit about some of the other more legacy players or more established players in the space. So obviously you guys are coming in, focus on disrupting some of these legacy players. Folio comes to mind and there may be others, but can you talk a little bit about some of the existing technology solutions and why you felt like those came up short?
1: Yeah, so there's basically two extremes. One is... Software that caters to property managers, that's the Yardi and the Appfolios of the world. Those have been around for 10, 20, 25 years, even before the cloud was there. They had the desktop versions and they provide property management software to property managers, But we know the mass market doesn't want that. People are okay managing their own property. And so from that perspective, it was not interesting for us to just go and compete in a space that had already existed. And I believe that space will always exist. I also think it's going to be a smaller part of the pie. I think more people will be enabled and empowered to manage their own properties through technology in the future. So those are some tech players in this space. The other ones are the ones that go after the do-it-yourself market. Examples are rental listing websites like Zillow and Zumper. But you also have Cozy and Avail and certain softwares that are built. They're free, usually free or close to free. And they're built for the DIYer to do everything themselves. Again, we weren't interested in going into that market. It's not changing the market. It's just providing operational tools for people to become more efficient. Our problem was creating tools to make people more efficient doesn't actually might increase satisfaction a bit, but it doesn't make it where suddenly a landlord says, wow, you just changed my life. It's like, oh, good, I'm collecting rent online versus offline, but it doesn't change their life. They still have to work with the tenants and collaborate and get the service professional out there, et cetera. And so when we came up with the platform approach, we said we want to do something entirely different. We want owners to feel empowered where they can control what they want to control, such as rent collection and rent going directly to them. We also want to take the burden off of them For the things that are super stressful for them such as a 2 a.m call where a pipe has burst and they have no idea how to shut off the main valve they have no idea how to get a water restoration company out there and a plumber out there they just don't know what to do that's what we're going to take off their plate and we're going to use a tech first platform to be able to do it and so that was the impetus of Hemlane and creating something in the middle that catered to, to real estate investors those who own rental properties but empowered them to make those decisions. It wasn't an all or none of you do everything yourself and you find your tools or you use a full service manager. It was great. You let us know what you need and our platform will help you with that.
0: I think it might be helpful if we talk through a customer journey of someone signing up and using Hemlane. So it sounds like, say I'm that prototypical, say I own three rental properties and I come on Hemlane. I'm guessing I'm setting up each of those properties and then I'm choosing what services I want for each of those. Is that correct? And if not, I guess, can you walk us through what that journey looks like?
1: Yeah. And actually with the journey, it's very difficult when you create something new to a market. It's very difficult to talk to customers who don't come through a referral and haven't heard about you. And so what we found is by telling people, like, here are the services that you would need, they're like, whoa, 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 wait, I need a full service manager or I want to do it myself. And so we've actually found as part of that customer journey, the first thing we do is figure out what are your pain points? Like, what are you not good at? And so the typical customer who comes to Hemlane, and this is just real estate investors in general who own three rental units, they're really good with finances. They love Excel. They love coming up and looking at their cap rates and the GRM and figuring out what properties are going to provide them a good return. They have that covered. But the next questions we ask them is like, Do you know how to do repair coordination? Are you available 24-7? Or is that going to be a pain point for you where you're going to need someone to take those calls and do that administration? Do you know how to troubleshoot the requests when a repair request comes in? Are you physically there? Like You might have three rental properties and one is next to you in Denver and the other is in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, how are you going to fly out there? You do need a leasing agent. So by understanding people's needs first of just what they need, Then we can basically set them up for the package that best fits their preferences of what they need from there. And then it's education through the platform. Our belief with technology is that we build it as if it is someone who is in fifth grade going through a process and has never managed properties. And we take them through and put tips and tricks in there, just letting them know this is exactly how you should be thinking about every question. And we don't overwhelm them with it. We don't say like, oh, do you need repair coordination right now? Here's the phone number. It's like, no, the tenant has put in a request. Okay, great. Here's what to expect next. And we take them through it at that point in time. And once they go through the first experience, such as advertising their rental property, they begin to trust us because they're like, oh, they just walked me through what I need to do next. And then they continue to expect that. And that's what we want. We want it to be at the right time and right place when they are educated of what we do, what they need to do, and what is expected of the tenant. And so from that perspective, most people come to us when they have a vacancy, but they can come to us at any point in the rental life cycle. We figure out like, what is that pay point? What are they trying to get done? And how do we get that done for them? Because if we can show them, we do that with that A plus service, we'll be able to do everything else the same way.
0: And it sounds like just reading between the lines there that you guys truly are able to help people from advertising a property to signing a lease to collecting rent. It's like full customer life cycle or for full renter life cycle. Is that, you have that correct?
1: Yeah, and actually, one thing that's really interesting about that, Daniel, that I learned about too late in building Hemlane for anyone out there starting a company is they typically say just start with one pain point, right? Just start with one pain point and build something for that and then start layering on everything else. With Hemlane, one of the things we did, it wasn't like, you know, you build the scooter, And then you build the skateboard and then you build the car and then you build the truck. Like that's how you should be doing it, where every individual component you can sell on its own. When we started Hemlane, we built all in one, all together, where we were like, yeah, we'll do your repair coordination. Yes, you need a leasing agent, we'll get a leasing agent. You need rent collection, don't worry, our system has that. You need background and credit checks, don't worry, we're not even going to just provide those. We're going to recommend to you whether to accept or deny this tenant based on big data. And now it works out now that we have a large enough team to do it, but it actually made the beginning of the process really stressful because we were trying to do everything. And when you try to do everything, you don't do anything well.
0: Just a clarifying question on that. I mean, it seems to me like you've struck on the cord of if someone is building a platform business, ultimately a platform business has to solve many, many, many pain points. And so it almost feels like you can have the goal of being a platform business, but you don't really want to start there. You want to start on a single pain point and then grow towards that.
1: Exactly. And I learned that too late. We took the difficult paths. I always think there's an easier path to entrepreneurship. And we definitely took that more difficult path now that we've done it. like In hindsight, I see that. But from that perspective, like one thing I would say, we'd listen to our customers early on. And when we spoke with our customers, they said, if you just do rent collection, that doesn't solve my problem. Or if you just do repair coordination, that doesn't solve my problem. You just being there whenever I need something That solves my problem with property management. And having a lower entry fee, like not paying 10% of monthly rent to get that, that is attractive to me. And so we really listen to customers in order to build what we have today. But we might have been able to segment those customers into who needed what and built it a different way than we did to get where we are. We're still at the same place that we would be at. It's just we took a different path, I would say, and probably a more stressful one where it was a lot of more all-nighters than it otherwise would have to be.
0: One more question around that. You talked about hearing from customers to solve their problem, you really needed to be able to solve all their problems. And so I'm curious, it gets back to the whole chicken and the egg. Do you start with one pain point when you're ultimately building a platform? And I guess you guys were tackling all of that stuff early on, But what insights there, if you have to solve all your customers problems, but you need to start somewhere small, does that mean you should like look for data further down the cycle once you've built enough to really be able to look at things like net promoter score? How do you think about that, like getting data from customers at the same time when you haven't solved all their pain points?
1: Yeah, I mean, now you can definitely use net promoter scores and data. of Like we send out customer surveys and say, hey, what are the biggest things we're not solving today? And we don't ask them for solutions ever. We just ask what's the problem. What is keeping you up at night that we can solve for you? And then we figure out how to solve it in a much more methodical way than a customer telling us how to solve it. But at the beginning, you know, really, when you start a business, you're just on phone calls. You're not using like big data to figure that out. You're just talking to customers. And it's a slower process from that perspective, but really make sure that those first people you're talking to love you. And I think that was really important with Hemline because how we grew... I mean, we bootstrapped it. And how we grew was listening to every single customer, what they wanted. And then we just continued to make them feel like we were building this just for them. Even though we were getting other users and they were sitting there referring 10 other people to Hemlane saying, this has changed my life. I was kind of thinking of using a property manager. I'm doing everything myself. I'm stressed out because I have a job and I'm traveling and I can't do it all. And now Hemlane just came along and just solved this pain point for me. And so I really think like at the beginning, it's not a lot of data. It is focusing on customers who you know there's a big subset of them. In other words, you can if it's a small market. Our market is huge. But if it's a small market and you're just listening to one customer, it's probably going to be something that later on down the road you regret spending so much time on. But what we did was we took who are the average real estate investors and listened to them and then just continued to build for them over time.
0: I'm curious to take a sample set of customers, but what was their experience? Like, what were they using? What was their system before Hemlane? And what are some of the ahas when they're making the switch from a customer's perspective? Where is the needle really moving? And what are some of those stories that you're hearing?
1: Yeah, there's basically with customers and you have your curve of when customers come in and are interested in new technology and those very, very early adopters, there's very few of them who are going to try something brand new and be the first ones and take a chance with it with them. What was really interesting is they almost had a Hemlane process that was completely inefficient, but they had built Hemlane themselves. In other words, they were folks who had an average of I'm thinking of David who lives in I'll give you an example of a customer. He lives in San Diego. He has seven rental properties and all seven rental properties are in different locations oh, around the US, Florida, Utah, Colorado, Texas, you name it. They were everywhere. And what was really interesting was he was self-managing those properties. And so he wasn't comparing us to a full-service property manager, which was good. If we had started with customers who were using full-service property managers, they would have been like, this is terrible. You don't do everything they do, right? We get there, but as we continue to build. But we started with people who were basically building Hemlane in a really inefficient way because they didn't have technology. So what David had was he had a leasing agent in every city where he would work with an agent to help find and place a tenant. He would help them by advertising it himself manually on Zillow and Trulia and Hotpads and Zumper and ForRent.com. He would manually do all of that. And then he would go and manually review the background and credit check with the leasing agent. And then when the tenants had repair requests, he would have them funnel to him, which was a huge pain point because they were calling him at 2 a.m. or like 6 a.m. on a Saturday, which they thought was 9 a.m. for him, but it was really 6 a.m. But he sort of had that same process and then he tracked in Excel all of this stuff. And we listened to him of like, hey, with this process, what's going wrong? And there was like a case where there was a hurricane and a flood and like we could have helped mitigate the damage to the asset but he didn't have that set up he had like a wouldn't call it a dumbed down version of hemline but he was trying to haphazardly put together various different processes manually not on a platform to do what hemline could do for him better and so we took customers like that where they were like, wow, this is exactly what I was trying to build, but I didn't have technology to do it. And those were those very first customers. Then from there, once we started getting the processes set up, we could get to the next curve where people are like, oh, cool technology. I'm in tech. Let me give you a shot. And they were usually managing the properties themselves, but they were super excited just to use something new and experience how it made their life more effective. And now we're at the stage where it's really interesting. It's people with property managers who come to Hemline, where now they say, hey, i have a property manager and you're doing it better than my property manager did. But those types of people, if they came to us at the beginning, they would not be with us today like we didn't have what we have set up today for them so it's at these different life cycles i'd say that you get different types of customers but you're building for the massive market who we're building for now is not those early day customers those early day customers still come but it's a different type of customer we're going after and like a much larger part of the market
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I've never heard anyone articulate that as well, of how a business can have very different customer profiles at different points in time. And I mean, it makes a ton of sense. And I imagine it's also incredibly exciting to see customers with full-time property managers coming to you because you're like, here we go. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) And it's easier now. We are able to provide and solve the problem for so many more people at the beginning We weren't able to do that. And so it's much more difficult to find those first few customers than it is now. Now it's much easier to grow and scale than it ever was at the beginning.
0: I want to go back to before you founded Hemlane with your co-founder. And I know in 2008, 2009, you started buying some rental properties. And, and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that experience, your experience there, some of the pain points. guess what I'm curious is like how much of building Hemlane is just scratching that itch or maybe that was the impetus and now it's far exceeded that.
1: Yeah, definitely. So back in 2008, the market crashed. And I was actually just starting my career in the sense I had no other obligations. I'd been working through college. And my brother-in-law had said, hey, I'm getting a ton of real estate investments in Denver. Do you want to be part of this? Basically, through that process, there's a couple of things. The first was I didn't really understand real estate investing. And most real estate investors, those who are landlords, also don't understand what they're getting into. It's kind of this, oh, great, someone will pay my mortgage every month for me. You kind of fantasize about being a landlord, and then you become one, and you're like, this is terrible. It's terrible for the tenant. It's terrible for me. This is a horrible process. But at that time, it was right opportunity. My older sister and husband were basically saying, hey, we're going in on properties. Do you want to help out? And so that was the start of my real estate investing. And then from there, what I realized was, Property managers, the ones we were working with, weren't the right ones for us. And so we started bringing that in-house and just doing property management ourselves, and not working with the traditional folks in the industry who worked very well for some people, just didn't work for us. And so it kind of had this itch to think about like, well, how can we make this process better? Again, that question of like, why does it work this way? Why couldn't we do something better? And it's interesting because I knew the problem back then but I didn't know the solution. If you had asked me to build Hemline back then, I couldn't have. And part of the reason was building for myself was not building for the rest of the industry. And so there were certain things that like, I was super nitpicky about that I realized like mass market wasn't. And an example of that would be at the beginning, I was really, really focused on the background and credit check and making that so good because there was an eviction that we had gone through that was terrible. And so I really wanted to make that better. But what I realized was like, hey, the current process and the APIs that we can integrate with, they basically serve 99% of needs. So why am I building for that 1%? And so I think it's bad to just build for yourself. It wasn't until I met my co-founder, Frank, when I realized, oh, wow, he has pain points as well in this industry. We can get other people together and start listening and then figuring out based on everyone what they're problems are, educate them of this is the best flow to do with your rental properties. And here's why we've designed it this way. And this will mitigate the most amount of risk without just building for myself. So I think there is something to say about if you just build for yourself, you might be going down the wrong path. But if you're building for others and then they start paying you for it, you hear the same thing over and over again, then you continue to build that. Then you're building a much more valuable product.
0: Yeah, it's a great, great, great story because it's like just scratching your itch doesn't mean that anyone else has that itch. It could just be it's something that you're focused on. And I think that's a fascinating example of over indexing on background checks and having that turn out to not actually move the needle for people. I'm curious, I think it'd be great if you could talk a little bit about your relationship with Frank, how you found Frank and decided to found him, Lane, and how you guys come at problems from different angles and how that works. This isn't a question I normally answer, this is an area I'm starting. Indeed, just get really curious about because I feel like there's so many businesses with co-founders, and yet we never really talk about the dynamic or the relationship or how that works. So, anyways, I think it might be interesting to give people a little bit of an example in hand Let me.
1: Yeah, and it's actually important to talk about it because 50% of failures at the early stage, they say, are because of co-founder dynamics. It's very difficult. A lot of times you choose a co-founder who's your friend. Someone you know and you're like, this is another rock star who works around the clock and is fantastic and we've worked together on such and such projects and we did really well together on them, so we're going to succeed at starting a company. And I actually don't believe in finding a co-founder who is like you, in part because your personalities are too similar. And your skill set is too similar. And in the case of Frank, Frank was someone I had never worked with before. So I got lucky in that sense. I got lucky with a good co-founder. But he was on the engineering side, full stack engineer, but we both had that same itch of, okay, there's something here because he has rental properties in Florida, Georgia, San Francisco, but he's small time too for rental properties, not a lot. So he was mass market, but knowing there was a problem in the market. And so in finding him, it brings me back to that point that he had all the skills I didn't. He's a full stack engineer who's so good at product and design and innovation and really pushed my limits. There were things I said, it's going to be impossible for us to build this and do this well. And he said, Dana, I guarantee you with technology and with data, I can build that. And I mean, his team did. And he proved me wrong time and time again. But I feel like if I had said, I'm going to start Hemlane," And I didn't have Frank and I went to search for Frank. I don't think I would have ever found him. It was a mutual friend, Thomas Hopkins, who was interested in the space as well. They both had gone to Stanford together, I believe. And then that was the introduction to Frank. And we had actually worked on projects with Thomas about like, how do we think about this? We like did some background and credit check research that I actually did as a school project with the two of them. And so we had started building stuff already in the industry. But then once Frank and I started Hemline and founded that and really went forward with it, that is when we realized we were onto something and how well we work together. But it could have been where I started working with Frank and realized, he was slacking. He was terrible. Like you just never know. I did get really lucky with him, but I think it's hard to be an entrepreneur because a lot of times you hang out in your work culture as well as your personal culture with people who are like you. And I think that does a really big disservice to innovation. I think the only way to innovate is to bring together people with completely different perspectives and bring them together to actually build something that is very thoughtful and doesn't just think about like one subset of a market that thinks about the entire market.
0: Yeah, I think bringing together multiple perspectives when you really want to build something that's nuanced and holistic makes a ton of sense. And I think that it's an amazing story. So thank you for sharing that. I think it'd be great to transition and talk a little bit about lessons learned, what this journey has been like for you. And one question I'd be curious to ask is today, if you could kind of go back to yourself when you were in those early days founding Hemlane and whisper any words of wisdom or bits of advice into your ear, (laughs) what you might have said to yourself back in time when you were founding. Himling.
1: Oh gosh, where do I begin? How long do we have? (laughs) So, and why I joke about that is now I understand why a lot of investors say, I'll take second time founders and I'll invest in them over first time. There were really hard times that we went through. And part of it had to do with bootstrapping the company. We made the decision to bootstrap it, but it also had to do with comparing ourselves to others of This company in a completely different space is doing a lot better than us. And, you know, if I could go back and whisper in my ear anything, it would be two things. One, keep going. You guys are going to make it through this. Like, just keep building and keep talking to customers. Keep focused on what you're doing. That would be the first. The second thing that I would say is don't compare yourselves to others because, One thing that we noticed and we still see today is that had we taken the path of raising a ton of money early on, which we had the opportunity, like we had investors very early on come to us and say, hey, here, do you want to raise some VC money? And this was back in twenty. 16, when we didn't have all the puzzle pieces put together, we just knew there was a problem. I guarantee we would have gone out and hired a ton of engineers and ton of business people. And then they would have also felt our stress of trying to figure out, oh, is this scalable? No, it's not here. We can actually change and think about it a different way. And I think once you bring on a team, you're focused on culture you're focused on keeping that culture, making sure they're happy. And when your path is going like this, and you're just you don't have product market fit right now, it becomes much more difficult to align everything and do everything. So I would say keep going. And then I'd also say you don't compare yourselves to other. just continue to focus on the market and focus on who you're building for.
0: I'm guessing that that second piece of advice is partly because there's literally nothing good that comes from comparing yourself. Because one, you don't have all the data points. Two, I fundamentally believe that each of us is playing a different game. And we just need to focus on that. Are there other reasons why you should just not look and listen?
1: I believe that it's sort of like a relationship. You never know what's going on internally. Unless you're in it, you could see it from the outside and say, oh, well, this person looked like she was crazy. And then you're in the relationship. You're like, actually, you have no idea what goes on behind closed doors. I think it's the same thing on the company side, because one thing that Frank and I noticed is everyone who we thought was our competition early on that we focused on no longer is in business. Like they are all out of business and we're still in it. And they had never heard of us back then, even though we had heard of them. So I think it's that. I also think it's innovation. The second you start looking at what competitors are doing and copying them, you're not bringing anything to society. Like then you're just building what someone else has and competing against them. And we tell our sales team this a lot. When you're talking to people, if someone's like, well, how do you stack up to a full service property manager? And how are you going to provide me with exactly what they have at a better price? It's like, no, we aren't. We'll tell customers, you are much better to go to a full service property manager because what your pain points are are exactly what they can provide a solution for. And I think when you're innovating in a space, which is the only thing that's interesting of becoming a new category in an industry, you can't think about competition because if you're comparing yourselves and building what they're building, then, I mean, why don't you just work for a big company that's competing against another? You're not creating a new category. And that's the one thing I would say is like, really just don't focus. I think I spent too long looking at competitor analysis of what other people were doing. And I could have saved a lot of time, by not doing that.
0: Yeah, there's not a lot of wisdom to be absorbed from competitive analysis, at least if you oversample on it. Yeah, <laughs> Spend too much yeah. time on it. I wanted to go a little bit deeper into one point you made, which was the way you talked about why it was important to bootstrap it early on, so you could take things slowly, you could be really methodical, you could make sure that you had product market fit, and then once you did, starting to actually raise capital more aggressively. I think it would just be great if you could talk about that and why it's important because I feel like that as well is not something you hear many stories of, of kind of founders doing this intentionally. And I think it's important. And I think your model, especially watching all of your competitors go out of business and here you are taking the slower approach, (laughs) staying in business and surviving and thriving. I think it's a fascinating example.
1: Actually, it's interesting because sometimes we have folks, especially in our latest round of funding, some of the investors I spoke with thought of it as like, wait, why would you bootstrap it? Why would you just, and I was like, oh, this person's never started a company. They don't. It's a modern day VC question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They've never started a company and they don't understand The thing is, is that your first folks you hire There's two things. And these people have to be absolute rock stars like your first couple of hires have to be the top performing individuals in order to get like where you can get that massive growth and get to an inflection point where you really know this is going to grow and scale to a billion dollars. Those first couple of people have to be absolute rock stars for a couple of reasons. One, they have to be good at everything. They have to be generalists where they say, oh, gosh, this isn't working. Let me figure this out. Let me dive into the details. But the second thing about these folks is they're in high demand. Anyone who's a rock star like that can get poached anywhere else. And so by them having confidence in you and then having confidence in the idea, if one of those things starts to falter like you yourself start going crazy or drinking too much or not setting a good example for the team and leading, they'll go off and they'll find another rockstar startup to get behind. But the second is the product. If they see every day you're changing things and you're scrapping the website and starting it over again, it kind of leads them thinking, is this going to work? Because they forget about the future. They are thinking about just the present and like, is this going to work for me and my career path? Because they want to be part of a rock star company. And so it depends on, and you don't know this until you've gone through it, it depends on how long it takes you. Some people can get that product market fit within a month or they get really lucky with what they're doing, but not everyone. And so my biggest piece of advice there is when you're starting, bootstrap until you know, hey, when I hire people and these people are your team members, they're also your family, you see them more than your family, when you do, you want to make sure that you have the conviction behind what you're doing and that you're just on the right path, that things are going to change. Don't get me wrong. If let's test this sales strategy. Let's test this. Let's test on the product side, launching this product or this product and see which one works better. But if you don't have the foundation built, you and your co-founder, and you start hiring and say, we'll figure it out along the way, that's where I see a lot of these companies implode where they've been lying to themselves too long that they're going to get somewhere. And then suddenly it's like they can't lie anymore. And this is companies that get to Series A, Series B. It's companies that get to Series E where suddenly they kind of lied themselves into thinking they were on this product market fit path, but they had to lead and present that because they didn't want to lose rock star team members. So from that perspective, like people have their own paths, but I would recommend if you have the luxury of living off top ramen like we did and bootstrapping it as long as you can, you will sleep better at night.
0: I want to ask two closing questions. And both of these are things that I think are just super interesting in your background and in the story. And the first is going back to your role at Apple in the finance team. I feel like there aren't many founders I know that have deep background in finance. How do you think that's helped you? And how do you maybe think that's hindered you? Or is moving from a finance only role to a CEO role? What have you had to change around that approach or that lens?
1: I think actually this is like just really good for all founders to know the moment you start a company, people assume, you know, everything when you're at the top, it's very hard for you to go and say, like, explain sales 101 to me or explain product 101 or design. People just assume you know this stuff. And so for me, I was in finance at Apple and knew so much about what is actually going to drive revenue and what isn't because we were focused on new products and launching the new products and how would that cannibalize our existing products really understanding and just doing that analysis at a high level before you even start to think of building it. I think that was super helpful. I also think at Nest, I had business development and I finally learned how to sell. All of that experience helped by the time I got to Hemlane that I didn't have to ask someone else for those questions. I could do that stuff on my own. And I think that too many people's careers are I'm going to go into X row at a company and my goal is to move up as quickly as possible on the corporate ladder. And the thing that you should think about when you start a career, whether you're 21 and fresh out of college or 22, or when you're even younger and you start working at a restaurant when you're 16 years old, the question is, how do I get enough skill sets that I'm so diverse that I can go and I can lead something big and really become my own CEO or become head of growth at a company. And the only way to do that is to get experience across a ton of different industries and also a ton of different divisions within an organization, And so I was thankful I had that from Apple, from Nest, et cetera, where I could go into it now and say, OK, let me look at the gross margin of this. These numbers don't make sense. Why do competitors have pricing like this? They're going to go out of business like this makes no sense to me. And having that structure from Apple really did
0: help. Yeah, that's fascinating. I want to ask if you could share the story of your professor writing you that initial check for 30k. Because when you told me that before, one, it's super profound, meaning I haven't heard many stories where like the genesis of the business is a business school professor writing them an angel check. But two, it's just also a really wonderful, generous thing that that teacher did. So I think it'd just be special if you could share that story with everyone.
1: Yeah, so back when we founded Hemling, I had offers from Apple, from Nest. Nest was then acquired by Google at that time to go back full-time after business school. And Frank and I had been working together, but we weren't really quite sure what Hemling was. But that professor I wrote the paper for literally had seen me every day in the iLab, Friday night, Saturday morning, just working on ideas and thinking of what we were doing and talking to customers and he had asked me, I think it was the last day of class, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I still think I want to work with Frank, but I've got these other job offers. But I think Frank and I are really on to something. And he said, OK, sounds good. And then two weeks later, I, and I totally forgot that conversation. And then two weeks later, he came to me and said, come into my office the day after graduation. It was like a Sunday morning. It's like, OK, sounds good. And I go in and he just hands over a check for 30000 and goes, go build it. And that was such a cool experience. And the reason he asked on Sunday morning was because as a professor, you're not allowed to, I guess, write angel checks. You have to wait until they graduate. And so I wasn't quite sure like, about the timeline. Now I know. But actually, that first person who believes in you is one of those experiences where like, now when I think about how can I give back and change someone's life? I wanna be like Talos Shera. I wanna be like that professor because that set us on up on a completely different path where we said someone believes in us. And that $30,000, I think between the two of us, we were able to make that $30,000 last a year. And it did and we just continued to build and then we really knew that we were onto something and we could raise more capital. We could bring on a team, but it was really having that belief from someone in us. And yeah, so I definitely recommend if you're sitting out there and you know someone who has a good idea, maybe go give them a $30,000 check.
0: Yeah, probably the easiest due diligence you've ever done, as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. For anyone that's interested, where can they go to learn more about Himlane, maybe follow you or follow the company on social?
1: Yeah. You can go to com. The benefit of having the name Hemlane is that no one else has it. So if you look us up on Facebook or Twitter, you'll also see us listed under the handles of Hemlane.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to everything that we covered, along with the show notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com 63. For more from Dana, listen to her 20-minute playbook interview, which drops this Friday in episode 64. There, we dive into everything from Dana's favorite habits, tools, and books to her favorite failure and her personal definition of success, all in less than 20 minutes. Finally, visit OutlierAcademy.com to explore more incredible interviews with the founders of Rally, Titan, Superhuman, Primal Kitchen, as well as New York Times best-selling authors and many of the world's smartest investors. From our entire team at Outlier Academy, we hope you enjoyed the show. I hope to see you right here next week on Infinite Games.